You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. What I want to do this morning is take extended time to look at the one we've been singing and talking about. So if you would open your Bibles or turn them on to Revelation chapter 5, that's what we're going to do. The title for this message is Loving and Worshiping the Lamb. I grew up in a religious tradition where week after week prominently displayed at the front of the room was a cross with the body of Christ hanging on it. And I remember often looking up at that image in different church buildings and experiencing a variety of emotions. Sometimes I would, I would feel sad that Jesus had to go through so much suffering. Other times I would be inspired by Jesus' example and think, you know what, if he did that much for me, I want to do something for him. And so I, I would want to be more humble. I'd want to serve others more. And, and I think if Jesus sacrificed his life, then I'm going to sacrifice mine as well. Maybe in a, a more limited way. And then other times I, I'd, I'd look at the, the image and think, what, now why did the artist choose to portray Jesus that way? And so I just get, you know, just caught in this reflection on, you know, aesthetics and, you know, why did he, why is that feet like that? And, but much of the time I was completely unaware of and unaffected by the cross, even though it was right in front of me every time we met. It just kind of blended into the background of the stained glass and the wooden pews and the stone floor. I think a lot of Christians in our culture go through the same thing, or at least something very similar to what I experienced growing up. When it comes to corporate worship, they don't quite know what to do with the cross. It's a little confusing, not quite sure about what it means. They they think there are deeper things to sing about, other things to sing about, like the environment or uh, social issues, and, or, or they don't know what to think about it. They just ignore it. But certainly not here at Doxology and Theology. I mean, our songs are filled with the cross. We've heard whole messages on the cross. We get the cross. Or do we? Or do we? One of the greatest temptations for those who are familiar with the cross is to become dull to the cross. Puritans had a wonderful phrase, labor to be affected by the cross. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Because our temptation is to become complacent, unaffected, and God forbid, even professional. It would be a great tragedy if we went home from doxology and theology with better methods, more helpful practices, a few new songs, and didn't love the dying Savior more. Theologian David Pryor said, we never move on from the cross only to a more profound understanding of the cross. The question I want to ask this morning is, do we believe that? And if so, do our lives reflect it? Because that's the even more important question. We can believe it and our lives not show it. Matt Carter reminded us last night that our ministry for Jesus must always be an overflow of our love for Jesus. And that if we love our ministry more than we love our Savior, our Savior will have no part in our ministry. Very impacting quotes. So I want to talk about the one we love this morning. To lift our eyes and move our hearts so that we might seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And just because we're a large group, I want to talk about what I mean when I say the word cross. I'm not speaking of an icon, a statue, two pieces of wood nailed together. The cross 
is shorthand for all that God accomplished through Jesus Christ and his death at Calvary. It takes into account who it was that was on that cross. A lot of people have been crucified in history, but there's only been one cross that held the Son of God. Who existed in glory with the Father and the Spirit before time began. Who came to earth as a man who lived a life of perfect obedience and righteousness before his Father. Who died a physical death. Who was raised physically from the dead. Who ascended to his Father's right hand. Who is presently reigning and interceding for us. And who one day will return in glory to live with his bride forever. When we talk about the cross, all that's included. But at the heart, and this is what we can get confused about or forget, at the heart of all that is the event where our sins were laid upon Jesus Christ and he took the wrath of God for us so that we might know the Father. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So what does God's word tell us about the cross and what it means for our worship? And and how should that affect us? And what should we know about worship in the cross? Well, rather than tell you about my experiences growing up, we're going to look at someone someone else's experiences. The experiences of the apostle John, the disciple who who knew Jesus, seemed to be his best friend, who who walked with him and and prayed with him and, and talked with him and listened to him teach and and then encountered him as the risen and glorified Christ. And for our benefit, he wrote about what he saw there on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to focus on one chapter, chapter 5, and what we're going to see see is this. At the heart of God-honoring worship is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. At the heart of God-honoring worship is the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. It's the honoring of Jesus and what he did at the cross. Because what took place at the cross is not peripheral or incidental or accidental for our corporate worship. In fact, it's at the very heart of our relationship with God. Now, I know that there are a lot of people in this room who can who can who know that and can even preach on it better than I can I'm sure but we don't all live consistently in the good of it it's meant to produce good in our lives it's meant to have an effect on our lives we can sing all the right things about the cross and fail to understand and love the one who hung on it It's another tragedy. We can listen. Our iTunes can be filled with messages about the cross. We can have podcasts that talk about the cross. We can read books about the cross and fail to live in the benefits that it accomplished for us and fail to love deeply the one who hung on it. I should know. I did it for decades. I was, I was a pastor for many years when in a particular season in the mid-90s, I realized I really didn't believe I was that bad of a sinner. I really didn't think I needed to be saved completely. I mean, I, I needed some help. I would acknowledge that. But the way I lived and the gods I worshipped showed that I really didn't believe I needed the Lamb of God to die for my sins. So I went through a season of despair, hopelessness, panic attacks, 
all caused by not acknowledging and appreciating and understanding what Jesus really accomplished at the cross. That's what we're going to be looking at. Revelation is a confusing book to many Christians. I want to say a few words about our context. You know, it's, it's filled with some strange things. You know, beasts and wars and angels and living creatures and lightning and thunder and prophecies and visions. I mean, it can seem overwhelming, kind of like X-Men on steroids. I mean, it's, it's just like, like nothing you've seen. And it's all right there. It's all right there in our Bibles. Other Christians think that Revelation is an exact description of how future events are going to unfold. You know, kind of like the charts that you see and that, well, this is happening, this is happening, this is We just need to crack the code to understand it. Well, God didn't intend the book of Revelation to confuse us or to tempt us to predict the future, which is great news. He gave us Revelation so we could see our world from his perspective, so we could see what is happening behind the scenes, both now and in the age to come. So at the beginning of chapter four, John is taken up through an open door into the throne room of heaven and he beholds God. And where is God? Not surprisingly, he's seated on a throne. And as with anyone else who's trying to describe God in scripture, uh, John has a hard time describing him. So he, he says he has the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, just two precious stones. He was trying to think, what, what can I say? What can I say? So he just says, well, it's, he's like these really valuable stones. And then he begins to describe what's around God. He says there's a rainbow there. And, and there are these, these creatures who are, are constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then others are saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And it's a picture that's filled with, with wonder and, and volume and mystery and awe and we learn that God created all things. He's worthy of our worship. He rules over all things. He's completely sovereign. And we could worship God for eternity just knowing those things. But God has more he wants to show John. And he has more he wants to show us. So I'm going to read Revelation 5. This is the word of God. This is the most important thing that I will be sharing this morning. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah 
the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and in the sea and all that is in them saying, him who sits on the throne and to the lamb the blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. focus of this scene from chapter 4 to chapter 5 shifts from the one seated on the throne to the lamb. More precisely, the focus doesn't shift. The lamb is added to the picture. And at this, in this chapter, we see at least Three reasons why Jesus and his work on the cross is at the heart of God honoring worship. Here's the first reason. Our Savior and his work on the cross is the means of our worship. It's the means of our worship. The scroll that we read about at the beginning of the chapter was no ordinary document. It wasn't a legal document. It contained the outworking of God's purposes for history. And as the seals are broken in the following chapters, God's 
purposes for history, his plans for history unfold. So the importance of the scroll is massive. William Hendrickson explains in his commentary, the closed scroll indicates the plan of God unrevealed and unexecuted. If that scroll remains sealed, God's purposes are not realized. His plan is not carried out. To open that scroll by breaking the seals means not merely to reveal, but to carry out God's plan. So in other words, if that scroll is not open, humanity is doomed. We have no hope. We'll be unable to worship God because he will be unable to deliver us. We just assume all these things. John didn't assume it. That's why he wept loudly when the scroll couldn't be opened. The one who opens the scroll has the power to bring about what is going to happen for the rest of time. And if that scroll remains sealed, history remains directionless, purposeless, hopeless. God's people have no hope of victory. Their enemies will not be defeated. And in the end, God's purposes will not be achieved. That's a pretty serious scroll. So John's response is, is one of weeping. And, and, and commentators tell us that the Greek word is, means loud wailing. I guess so. I guess so. If you thought the redemption of God's people was dependent on a scroll being opened and, and then they look around and they can't find anyone to open it, wouldn't that be just a little upsetting? Wouldn't that put a little fear in your heart? A little sadness? And eternity hangs in the balance as, as search is made for someone, someone, anyone who is able to open the scroll and thus release God's plans for history to begin. So they look in heaven. No one in heaven. They look on the earth. No one on earth. They look under the sea, under the earth. No one under the earth. Perhaps they move on to angelic beings, spiritual rulers and authorities. Can anyone open this scroll? Answer comes back, no one. Maybe they, maybe they look into people who had already died, people yet to be born. Any, any, anyone we haven't seen yet? No one. No one could open that scroll. But then an elder, who's probably an angel, says to John, and these must have been happy words, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Someone has been found worthy enough to open that scroll. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. What a great name. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Not quite as impressive as the line of the tribe of Judah, but still a significant name. <laughs> the root of David. Both names have significant Old Testament meaning. They're concepts of power and authority and royalty. And they evoke this picture of a, of a military ruler destroying the enemies of God's people. You could picture in your mind this, this mighty warrior decked out in amazing armor, towering over his enemies. So John looks in the next verse to see who this is. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David? And he sees a lamb. The lamb, it looks like it had been slain. This is the one. The 
only one. In all of time, in all the universe, who could open that scroll? John says he has seven horns and seven eyes. Don't go home and try to draw this. This, That's not what this is about. God speaks to us in Revelation through pictures. This is theology through images. And in the Old Testament, the horn is a symbol of strength and seven is the number of perfection and completion. So he's saying that this lamb has perfect and complete strength. And seven eyes means that he sees and knows everything perfectly and completely. He is the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing, and he has been slain. He's been slain. <laughs> the all-powerful, all all-knowing one. He, he was slain? Exactly what God wants us to see. He has been slain. Now, it's true, he's alive. He's standing. But the marks of his being slain still remain. What did John see? What did he see? Was it like a slit across the throat? Was the, was the wool stained red? We don't know. We'll not, we, don't, we might know sometime, but we don't know now. But what we do know from verse 9 is that it is because he was slain that he is worthy to take the scroll. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Jesus and his work on the cross is our means of seeing God's purposes fulfilled, both in history and in our lives. Evil will be vanquished, and God will have a people who will worship him forever because the lamb was slain. Jesus and his work on the cross is the means of our worship. Now, hundreds of thousands of lambs have been slain before this lamb. As you are well aware, in the centuries before Christ, Jewish priests would offer up sin and guilt offerings, sacrificing lambs, goats, and bulls for their own sins and the sins of the people. Every day, twice a day, morning and night, plus special days, year after year, century after century, the priests would offer up the same sacrifices, but they could never take away sins. And none of them were worthy enough to open the scroll. Then Jesus came. The one John the Baptist calls the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he offered up his life as a sacrifice. A sacrifice that will never be repeated. Praise God. And through his once and for all sacrifice on the cross, he has entered the heavenly sanctuary to make full atonement for our sins and to tear down the veil that separated us from God. So in Revelation 7, a couple chapters over, we see inestimable thousands clothed in white robes worshiping God and the Lamb. Their white robes signify purity, And verse 14 of chapter 7 tells us they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Only in heaven can you wash your clothes in red and they come out white. In other words, they owe their righteous standing before God. They owe their nearness to God to the blood of the Lamb entirely to the cross of Christ. Apart from Christ's finished work 
on the cross, we would have no means of access to God or his purposes. To have no access means not only that we can't get close, we can't even get in. No one was worthy to open the scroll in heaven or earth or under the earth, no one but the lamb who was slain. He is the means by which we draw near to God. Through him and him alone, God's justice is satisfied. We are completely forgiven and we can draw near to God boldly and confidently to worship him. The lamb who was slain is the means of our worship. Point two, our Savior and his work on the cross is the content of our worship. Our Savior and his work on the cross is the content of our worship. It's a song that's become very popular, sung around the world, bless millions, and that is Revelation song. It's a wonderful combination of lyric and melody that helps us anticipate the time when we will pour out our hearts in devotion to the Lamb around the throne. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he. Sing a new song. To him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. It's a beautiful song. Massively popular song. And if I could only make one change. <laughs> how many times have I said that to myself? And you said the same thing. Uh, I, I wish it spoke just a little more directly to what the cross means. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a great song. This is in no way to slight the song, but it's just making a point. It says the lamb was slain, but it doesn't tell us exactly what it accomplished, exactly how we got there. The view of the lamb becomes more stunning and awe-inspiring and worship-producing when we understand why he died. The view of the Lamb becomes more stunning and awe-inspiring and worship-producing when we understand why he died. So God tells us. This is what the living creatures and the elders are singing around the throne. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What makes up the new song of the living creatures and the elders? You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That's what you did. Heavenly worship centers around what Jesus' work on the cross accomplished. What it meant. Jesus didn't die as a mere example. He is an example, and his sacrifice on the cross is an example to us of what our lives should look like. He was not a martyr dying for a good cause, just a good man who just met up with bad circumstances. He wasn't an unfortunate victim of his circumstances. He willingly died on the cross to achieve something. He made something happen. And what he made happen was the ransoming or purchasing of people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What did he ransom us from? It's a question that theologians have asked for centuries. What did he ransom us from? Well, the Bible's not totally clear on that but this is what we know we were under God's wrath objects of his just judgment we were slaves to the power of sin held captive by the devil we were powerless to change and condemned under his law and Jesus came and through his one atoning death he ransomed us from all that 
So how did that happen? What's so significant about his death? Well, Paul tells us, if you turn over to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul says there, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus canceled the record of death that was against us. And in doing so, we're told he triumphed over the powers of evil. So he triumphed over the powers of evil by canceling the record of debt, by removing the judgment against us. We're no longer being judged for our sins in an ultimate sense because Jesus was. He received the punishment we deserved in his own body. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was saying that that sacrifice, that payment for our sins, that ransom price was fully accepted. It's done. It's God's amen to Jesus' full payment of our ransom. But it was in the cross that Jesus triumphed. It was there that Satan lost his right and ability to accuse and condemn those whom Jesus had redeemed because Jesus was condemned in their place. So when Satan comes and says, you're this, you're, you're vile, you're guilty, you're a cheat, you're, you lust, you're angry. We say, yes, 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 yes. And more. And all of it was paid for. In full. So you can't say anything to me that can tempt me to condemnation because the lamb was condemned in my place. That's triumph. That's victory. And that's what the hosts of heaven choose to worship Jesus for. It's the content of their worship. They could have sung about Christ's wisdom or beauty. They could have sung about his courage or his authority or his power to heal or his selflessness or his sovereignty or his love. And all those things are completely appropriate to sing about. But what's the content of this song? By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Philippians 2 says that it is because Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, that God highly exalted him. What an odd connection. He bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what we're getting is that nothing impresses God the Father more about his son than his sacrificial substitutionary That's what God the Father finds most impressive about his son. Why should we be different? Why would we want to be different? 
This explains why our worship is a response to what God has done and not an effort to get him to do something. Whether that's corporately or whether that's just every day. Worship is response to what God has done, not an effort to get him to do something. I come from a, a number of different traditions um, spiritually. I was raised a Roman Catholic. I was a band that traveled around the country for years and we saw everything. I've uh, been a part of a, a very uh, non-charismatic church. I've been part of charismatic churches. Sovereign Grace Ministries is uh, reformed and continuationist. and so It's just like the whole thing. So I understand how right it is for us to come together to expect God to work in our midst. I believe that God is here by his spirit, actively working in our midst right now as we gather, when we sing, when we meet as the church. He is there to do something. He's not just watching. Oh, how are they going to do He's not raiding us. Oh, I don't know. I get a six. <laughs> he, he, he is with us. He's actively present among us. And I look forward to that every time we gather. It's never an ordinary Sunday meeting. Don't plan for an ordinary Sunday meeting. You don't have them. Jesus is there by his spirit. But here's what we have to guard against. How often do we forget that God has already done something? And it's amazing. Jesus, the lamb, has triumphed. So it's why we sing and talk again and again and read about and proclaim again and again what Jesus has done through his work on the cross because it's so amazing. It's so amazing. And yes, I love it when, when we, we experience God's presence in, 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 in an experiential way. But if I don't, it's okay. I still got plenty to, to worship God for. Plenty. Plenty. Jesus, through his death, has paid for our sins. Let this sink in. Endured our punishment. Satisfied the wrath of God against us. Paid our debt to God. Delivered us from hell. Overcame Satan. Justified us before God. Purchased our adoption into God's family. Brought us peace with God. Secured our eternal joy with God. Praise the Lamb who was slain. Our Savior in his work on the cross is meant to be the content of our worship. Lastly, our Savior and his work on the cross is the object of our worship. The Lamb who was slain is not only the means of our worship and the content, he is the one we worship. The lamb's the object of our worship. There are five heavenly songs in chapters four and five of Revelation. And they make it very clear that we not only worship God for what Jesus has done, we worship Jesus himself for what he has done. That's common knowledge to us in the 21st century. Although we may forget it at times, may slip to the periphery. It wasn't common knowledge when John wrote these words. Judaism was a monotheistic religion. There is one God who is worthy of worship. And so John never directly calls Jesus God but he does something that makes it very clear Jesus is God and deserving of our worship. He ascribes names to God and then ascribes those same names to Jesus. So at one point, God is called the one who was and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Jesus is called all those things as well. 
In Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And you're thinking, that's right. They're falling down before God. That's exactly right. In Revelation 5.8, just one chapter over, the elders fall down before the Lamb. And if you're a first century Christian with Judaism background, you're going, what? What? We're just supposed to fall down before God. That's right. That's exactly right. So you can fall down before the Lamb. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let me ask you this. Is your amazement at the Lamb of God so great that you can imagine yourself thanking and worshiping him forever and ever. And never wondering, what's next? Is this all there is? Do we, do we got something else coming up? Ever. Thinking those thoughts. Is your love for the Lamb who was slain so all-consuming that it overshadows or affects all other loves? That it influences all your other loves? He's the object of our worship. Do we merely sing and talk about Jesus or do we worship and love him? Do we worship and love him? John is clear in this book that can seem so confusing. John's very clear. Jesus is God. And is meant to be worshipped. And in all the praise of Jesus, the hosts of heaven never lose sight of the fact that he is the lamb who was slain. Yes, he is triumphant. Yes, he is the conqueror. Yes, he is the king. He is the Lord of lords. He is the ruler of all. He is the bright and morning star. He is the holy one, the true one, the faithful and true witness. But he will always be the one who died and came to life, the lamb who was slain and is now raised from the dead. And so, so, he deserves our unending, loud, physically expressive, joyful, grateful worship. How could he not? How could he not? Does Jesus, the lamb who was slain, have your unending, loud, physically expressive, joyful, grateful worship? Or is it some other object? And let me speak to leaders for a moment. Is it our, is it our reputation? Is that what we live and breathe by? Is it our career? which makes us tempted to be satisfied to serve at a church that's paying us, but which really isn't exalting the lamb who was slain? Is it our family? Is it our hobbies? Is it our music? I don't know. Is it some other Jesus? Is it a Jesus who never suffers, suffers who, who never has problems? Is, is it a Jesus who doesn't really care about the details of our lives? Is it, is it a Jesus who's not very powerful? Is it a Jesus who always does what we want him to do when we want him to do it? Is it a Jesus that kind of fits our 21st century view of what Jesus should look like? Or is it the Jesus of Scripture? The Lamb who was slain.
Brothers and sisters, there will come a day, praise God, when nothing will distract us. Nothing will seem more important. Nothing will be more fascinating. Nothing will be more amazing than gazing upon the Lamb who is slain. And just to be clear, I don't, I don't think the new heavens and the new earth uh, that God says those are, that's all we're going to do. But if that's all we're going to do, that's fine. I'm good with that. I think we will continue a, a life uh, similar in some ways to what we do now. There will be working and playing and painting and singing and, and all that kind of stuff. But it will all be done with this one purpose. And that is to glory in the Lamb who was slain by the power of the Spirit for the glory of the Father. So it will all be. That day's coming. Our great high priest. The spotless lamb, our Savior, has made sure that day is coming. And every tear will be wiped away. As we behold the one who bore our sins to reconcile us to the Father and to make us his own. It's the lamb who is slain. He's beautiful. Labor to be affected by the cross. And so to the one on the throne and to the Lamb, be all blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to reflect upon your words to John, through John in the book of Revelation. We thank you that it is a glorious, mind-stretching, soul-changing, heart-affecting picture that draws us to see the inadequacy and pitifulness of everything that is not bringing glory to Jesus Christ, our Savior who hung on the cross in our stead so that we might be yours. May that picture and all that it means produce in us a humility and a gratefulness and a selflessness and a security that brings honor to you and draws many more to come to know Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. We pray in his name. Amen.